This is Another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio, KOOP Hornsby, Austin, 91.7 FM, and KOOP.org. I'm your host, Mark Rayshap, here to appreciate wines from all over the world and to talk with Austin's leading wine professionals, from winemaker to sommelier and everyone in between. Now it's time to put another bottle down. Good afternoon, Austin. Thank you so much for tuning in. We've got a wonderful show for you here today. Every Tuesday from 1 to 2 p.m., we talk wine in the wine industry, and this is an incredible show, and we've got two guests who are recent transplants from the Long Island wine region, and I bet a lot of people don't even know that they make Long Island uh, wine in Long Island, and so we're going to delve into that. Reagan and Carrie Mader, who are uh, owners and winemaker of South Old Farm and Vineyard, and they have just set up shop in the Texas Hill Country, so we're going to talk about their philosophies, we're going to talk about their motivations to moving to Texas, so stay tuned, we're going to really jump into this. Time to talk some wine. Welcome, guys. So I'm here live in the studio with Reagan and Carrie uh, Mater from South Old Farm Vineyards. Did I get your names right? Welcome to the show. Yeah. <laughs> South Old Farm and Cellar. South Old Farm and Cellar. Cellar, yeah. Right. It's a long, it's a whole mouthful. So. Well, I think it conveys a few points. Sure. You know, we, we, we talk about wine on the show. That's our main focus. But we also talk about other agricultural products and things that come from the ground and mm-hmm. all the kind of the good things in life, you know, the mm-hmm. things that we should really appreciate. Yeah. And so you kind of do a little bit of both. Well, right? I, th- I think for us, the, the name was meant to remind people that you know, a vineyard is is more a farm than anything, and that that ground is probably one of the most important aspects of it. So, yeah. Well, we're gonna we're gonna delve really into into that and how the ground really makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd I'd like to kind of start off by talking about your time in Long Island and uh, giving us context as to what is going on in Long Island, mm-hmm. what you did there, and then how the move came about, and, uh, and we'll go from there. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe, Carrie, let, let's, have, let's have you. You're from Long Island, right? So, Correct. Uh, so that was maybe an impetus to, to go there? Yeah. So Regan and I had got married in 2011. We were both living and working in New York City, which is where we met, um, even though he's from Texas and I'm from New York. And right after we got married, he felt the calling to go into the wine industry, (laughs) uh, leave advertising, which had been his, I don't know, third career. And I said, this is it. This is your last chance. Um, But we were actually pretty fortunate because my parents still live out on the North Fork of Long Island. So we were able to really wade into the opportunity in a pretty safe way. So Regan was uh, pretty lucky in the sense that he came across a job posting for an assistant winemaker, and they were looking for someone that didn't necessarily have a lot of training. They were willing to train them on the job, and so Regan applied, and he got the job. And so within a few months after getting married, about three months, I guess, we got married in April. He moved out in July. 
he left our apartment in the city, quit his job, and moved out to the North Fork, moving into my parents' house, <laughs> the room that used to be mine. Yeah. And so he started... All by myself. Yeah. Him and my parents and a cat living Family together. Dinners, everything. <laughs> it was great. Riding a bike to the uh, vineyard where he worked and started kind of learning the business while I stayed behind and kept my job. Kept our apartment just in case this all turned out to not really be the path that was going to work out for our family. Um, so that was a situation where we started out within a few months uh, in December. We uh, completely relocated, moved into my parents, and then we started to really think about this as a future place to set roots. So yeah. there was a lot of ideating and thinking about possibilities and visiting different properties as we started to think about what could be possible there. Um, and so... Well, we were kind of debating about where we were going to be. We did some... You know, the thought was that we'd come back to Texas at the time, too, that it was kind of all on the table. And then, but it was it, definitely going to be wine. It was going to be wine. And we, we just happened to stumble upon a property um, that had been on the market for a number of years. It was owned by a holding company that used to own a bunch of Napa Valley wineries, and they were going to do some things out there. And then uh, 2007 came, 2008, and the, you know they had some sort of boardroom coup or something and put the property in the market too expensive, and it sat there for about six years before we found it and offered them a price and got it for pretty inexpensively to the point where we were able to do something there, which would never totally been the plan. It's not cheap to buy land in the North Fork of Long Island. Right, and then the investment has to go for several years. So can you paint us a picture as to what Long Island was about at the time and, and where did you, you saw the potential, obviously. Sure. I mean, there, there, you know, it had been a region for about 40 years and they had done quite a bit of, you know, early exploration, trying to figure out what worked and what didn't, kind of followed the Bordeaux path, um, you know, the, mostly you, you'd see out there, mostly Merlot and Chardonnay and people were successful. Um, right. There's wineries out there. Some had gone out of business, but a lot of the stalwarts were doing pretty good things and you could just see a lot of potential and the stuff coming out of the ground, the places that I worked. Um, and so, you know, we kind of took that as well, if we can, you know, if, if we're going to join this community, what more can we add to the conversation? I think that's one of the most argument, uh, the, the best argument for doing almost anything mm -hmm. is what, what, you know, what can you do that, that pushes the bar and what can you do that other people aren't doing and how can you do it better? Mm -hmm. And, and so you saw that, you kind of saw that from the, 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 the uh, sidelines there, maybe not making all the decisions as assistant winemaker, sure. but you were seeing what was going on and then maybe formulating in your mind, how do we do things better? Yeah. The, one of the nice things about my experience there was, you know, it was, uh, the winery that I worked at was about 10,000 cases and there was just the main winemaker and me in the cellar. And so I had to do, we had to do everything. I mean, you're talking about from lab work to, to helping with vineyard stuff to, to I mean, I saw, and, and there was a, a whole lot of varieties at that winery too. So I got to see quite a bit in a very truncated amount of time. It wasn't like I was just the guy doing pump overs. Right, and that would have, and that was maybe completely necessary because you didn't have this, you know, long study, you know, four year yeah. degree or whatever, you just kind of jumped yeah. right in and yeah. so you had to have seen everything. Yeah, yeah. definitely benefited from, you know, uh, I have plenty of friends that come out of, out of these programs and they're brilliant winemakers. It, I think one of the benefits from my perspective is I didn't come with, you know, preconceived notions. It was kind of like, 
I got to see a basic way of how you're making wine. The guy that I worked for was a UC Davis master's grad and really intelligent guy, but it kind of opened the door for me and like, just do what you want to do and and kind of, you know, make up your own theories. I didn't have that, that, well, this is the way that things are done. Right. And that, that has to be liberating in a lot of senses. And well, it's great to be naive. (laughs) 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 But well, I, I think that, you know, if we were to jump ahead a little bit, then, you know, you started to get a lot of praise in New York for some of the things that you were doing that maybe a winemaking school might warn you against, right? Sure. Maybe. Can sure. I-, I mean, you know, some of the first wines that we put out, um, we got lucky to find a vineyard that was um, all biodynamically. They're going to be de- um, Demeter certified. They were organically certified which for out there is something really impressive. And um, f- for folks who, who don't know the ins and outs of, of all of the biodynamics thing, biodynamics is this philosophy, and then Demeter is the organization that certifies, certifies it. it. Yeah, right. that's right. Um, and yeah, Rex, you know, we found Rex. Rex found us. Um, no one wanted us fruit because they never thought they'd get a berry off of it, and, and no one wanted to give us anything because they thought we'd ruin their fruit. So we got really <laughs> lucky in that. Those first, you know, wines, I think, took a lot of people by surprise. And, you know, we just did some, you know, little different things. We added a lot of whole cluster, um, stem inclusion on things. And and I think it gave the wines a little bit different profile than what people were typically. And, and I think that also had to do with the fact that we were much more led in our approach um, by, you know, more of a European style Um you know, those are the wines that we were drinking and enjoying, and that's... Right, so living in New York, you had this basis of knowledge yeah. of what wines you were enjoying. Access. And access, too, right? Yeah. And and also a willingness to explore, yeah. right? I mean, Absolutely. that's a key piece to it, that if you're comfortable in your, you know, Napa Valley Cabernet, you might yeah. not know these other techniques or what people are doing Varieties all around the world. Or any of that, for sure, for sure. And that, that definitely gave us a huge... Um, when did you start about about when did you start getting into wine? Was it kind of in those New York days there or, or? it was in the New York days for yeah. sure. I mean, I can remember getting into wine, though, in college. And I mean, you know, I think I think my grandfather gave us a, a, a really old silver oak once. And I can remember that bottle being like, wow, this is different than things that <laughs> right. I've drinking before. And like, OK, so wine can be different. So. You know, when I started making a little bit of money, I started uh, spending it on wine, and then I wasn't making a lot of money, so I stopped spending it on wine. You know, right. kind of ups and downs through, you know, post grad, post uh, college life. Yeah, was it the variety and the new experiences that really attracted you, or was it was well, it something was, else? I think there's there is a romance to wine. Yeah, and <laughs> there's an, this idea that that you know something can be grown that captures the time and a place in a bottle and a thing that you can actually consume is really kind of a, a crazy special thing um, uh, to think about, you know, try wines that are 50 years old and think about who was making these and right. what was going on. And I think that's, that, that was always kind of, uh, you know, 
the romantic stuff always kind of really enticed me about it. It wasn't until getting into it that I just fell in love with the. Yeah, and Carrie, were, did you were you were you drawn as well, or did you kind of put up with it? Uh, the, 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 the path. <laughs> well, in college, I was definitely drinking box wine, so I can't say that I was uh, exploring it much in college. Um, Regan always likes to remind me that I wanted this because back in the day, I used to be say to my parents, "We should invest in a vineyard. Let's buy one. It's only a million dollars. Um, we can all work it together." But that was certainly never a possibility or so I thought. Um, so I can't say that I was as uh, passionate about it, maybe from the early start, but I definitely could see how Regan wanted to get involved and was excited about like kind of making something happen. And I could stand behind that. And, uh, you know, I was definitely willing to go back home. That certainly was a plus. And also just the possibilities for our family to run this business in the way that we saw it as a family business that we ran from our homestead property and a farm that we farmed. And so I thought that that seemed like the sort of lifestyle that would make sense for our family instead of keeping these corporate jobs and doing what we had been doing. So it was maybe a little bit more big picture for me than right. maybe about just the wine. Okay. Well, wonderful. I mean, but I enjoy it now, so it definitely worked out. <laughs> I'm well, all thank in. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you decide then in 2013 to, to make the dive and plant the vineyard. What mm. was going through in your mind? Uh, you planted that vineyard out in Long Island with some far out grapes or maybe some grapes that are not uh, known readily uh, in every household in America. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what was going through your mind during that time and what did you actually plant there? I mean, you know, like I said before, there was the industry had been there for a while, so a lot right. of vineyard had been planted, and it's not a place where things are getting ripped out and replanted. It's expensive, so you don't see people just popping in and, you know, buying twenty, fifty, hundred acres and then planting them with, you know, let's just try stuff. So it, it definitely, um, I think a lot of things happen there um, with risk heavy on the mind. So you saw a lot of Chardonnay and Merlot and stuff that, you know was a very marketable, especially at the time when things were kind of heating up out there and then, and be fairly easy to work with. And, and there's some great sites and there's some great spots for some of those varieties. I've, I've, you see the variation. Um, but for us, it was like, if we're going to jump into this, we need to add to the conversation rather than just kind of moving right along. So, you know, one of the things that we always kind of saw was uh, in one of the things that people miss is that it actually isn't, you know, Finger Lakes cold out there. It's not as cold of a climate as people think it is. And and one of the things that happens is you don't get that diurnal effect. So when you're in the ripening cycle, your acids are depleting overnight as well as during the day. And so you can find yourself um, in, in an upside down chemistry situation um, and so for us, it was like, well, let's see what, you know, higher acid varieties that we can ripen in this place might fare. And that's where we landed on Trolvigo and Lagrine. Um, well, this is an interesting conversation and we'll get to it a little bit later in the show, but yeah. in talking about that, um, that the vine eating up acid at night, mm -hmm. uh, because of the, if, if folks don't know what the diurnal shift is, the difference in temperature from daytime to nighttime mm -hmm. temperatures and, uh, with a, a large shift, whereas it gets really cold at night, well, then the acids are maintained, right? And Long Island didn't have that. And so you could have a low acid sort of situation and jump ahead to now you're in Texas and you see <laughs> the 
the same, same thing, thing right? For sure. And that's one of the, the, the reasons that a lot of maybe the hoity-toity wine people think that you can't make great wine in Texas because there's not that shift. But, yeah. but they're not out in the vineyards and they're not seeing well, it, Well, right? yeah, and there's, I think, I mean, we can get into it as far as Texas is concerned later, but I think that there is both things that people are starting to do now that are helping with that as far as how you manage your vineyard, but also just the varieties that you're picking and, right. and that. I mean, that's that's all manageable. Yeah. So, so if folks um, have not heard of Tiraldigo and Lagrine, give us a little description about them. Um, because you still have in your cellar now, and, and your cellar is only uh, three months old, you said, here in Texas, you do have those varieties yeah, yeah, we brought, that you brought down. Yeah, we have about you know, a few vintages of stuff that we held on to. Yeah. Um, so describe Tiraldigo, and, and uh, we had the, the great fortune to taste them before the show, so I mean, they're I both jump in. kind <laughs> of Syrah-ish, I think. You know, they, they, they you get some of those those notes and those those flavors a little bit. Um, uh, the Lagrine generally tends to be a little more austere, at least in my, my opinion. You get a little bit of that kind of meteor tone right. um whereas i think Charles de go ends up being a lot more floral and and pretty um it's kind of you know two different versions of syrah that you kind of can see and right. that's kind of what we liked i liked about them and they were a little bit more hardier than syrah um the so day. they did really well in that climate uh yeah. in the in the north they're a little climate. bit of a pain in the vineyard i mean they <laughs> they like to lay down they don't stand up straight but you know that's that's part of it right learning but the but the main uh, key is that they are um uh they maintain their acidity yeah uh, after you know you harvest you can get ripeness so you can get mm-hmm. full fruit flavors but the wine is still fresh yep yep and that that's i think one of the big things about our wines that we i mean think constantly about is how to do everything we can to maintain freshness yeah and so we did very little barrel aging you know we try to do low lower temperature um fermentation so smaller lot fermentations and that kind of thing um and that's just to kind of maintain a freshness in the wines yeah um we bottle a little bit earlier and like to let things sit in the bottle for longer in age that way um as opposed to um in barrel so to speak yeah i like how you describe it that you um you know you make your wine uh more based on acid which is the freshness piece then mm-hmm. more than on the ripeness the side sugar, and yeah. then on sugar alone yeah. which then translates to higher alcohol yeah. right yeah yeah what um you also in 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 long island you uh have done some kind of far out techniques maybe like um we, we tasted a wine that was carbonic maceration can you describe yeah. what that is um, basically we just took the whole clusters and stuck them in a tank under CO2 and left them in there for about two weeks. And I mean, having never done that before, never seen it done, it was a little bit, um, a little, and we did it with Cabernet Franc too, which I think was, uh, a, an interesting choice even for us. Um, you know, the first one we did called Minor Threat, um, it came out that it was, it was so surprising to me. It's still one of my favorite wines I think that we've ever made. Um, but it was just so juicy and fun and, and, uh, so floral the, but during the whole process, I mean, I can remember chasing what juice was coming out at the bottom of the tank and it was probably the most disgusting thing I've ever tasted in a winery. It is so <laughs> frightening. Like, what have I done to this? And, 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 but you know, you just kind of, one thing that I, I have learned from a winemaking standpoint, you just keep going, like, don't tinker, you know, don't, don't. Things might be going off the rails, and sure, I've lost some wine before, um, 
but like, you know, do what you can not to try to fix something, you know, mm. don't add stuff into it. Don't try to, to fix what's there. Just let it do what it's going to do and be patient with it. And nine times out of 10, at least for us so far, it's worked out. It's really worked. Yeah. I think that that's the second metaphor for life that we have had in the show so far. So let's, uh, <laughs> We're being we'll, we'll keep, very philosophical so today. We'll keep on going. If you're just tuning in, my name is Mark Rayshap, and this is Another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio, K-O-O-P 91.7 FM. And we're here live in the co-op studios with Reagan and Carrie from Southold Farm and Cellar. And uh, they have a wonderful website, a lot of really good information. If you want to follow along, it's Southold farmseller.com farmandseller.com farm seller, all spelled out all spelled out mm-hmm. and I will post a link on the co-op webpage koop.org so you can go there you can go to Southold Farm and Cellar and uh, and get linked up with all the info and uh, Reagan and Carrie moved recently from Long Island they garnered quite a bit of acclaim in the Long Island community and the New York community started being picked up by a lot of the major restaurants in New York City and then decided to make the move to Texas and mm-hmm. I- I'd like to get into that so mm-hmm. you know you you were probably really excited. Carrie, your family was there. Mm-hmm. Um, you you worked at a winery. You decided, oh, there's some really cool wines that could be made here. You planted a vineyard. Renovated an entire house for a year with our own hands. <laughs> so we really put in roots in a lot of ways when we set up shop there. Planting the vineyard, establishing the business, renovating and building a house, had a baby along the way. So we were we were all in. And then it all went sour grapes to a certain extent. Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, we were under the impression before we bought the property that we would we're be able told. to run the business as a small producer where we farmed the land ourselves, um, sold the product out of a small tasting room on our property where we also lived, and wanted to do this uh, very much small business, hand selling, knowing the people, we were never going to be doing events or music or entertainment or weddings. That's not what was going to happen. Um, but unfortunately, ultimately the town didn't agree with kind of our vision and we thought we really were what the town wanted. And it came down to them saying an interpretation of a town ordinance didn't work in our favor. And we ultimately had to decide, did we want to become something else and buy more land, build a bigger facility, hire more staff, get investors and go down this path where we weren't you know, doing what we set out to do, right. or did we want to change course and take our business plan and our vision and go somewhere else? And so that was really the fork in the road that we came to once we got this yeah, uh, mean, resolution from the town. Really keeping, you know, we, it was going to be a point where we were either going to have the focus being on the business of of a winery in a facility versus the business of making great wine and yeah you can do both of those things it's a lot more tricky but we figured for us for our sake we wanted to focus solely on the so wine. is that kind of the heart of the business out there uh, even to this day that it's it's a tourist destination it's not too far from new york city they do big events and it's kind of community oriented and i know that that's a that's a that's also a knock um not a knock but some people criticize the texas industry that so much money goes into the tasting room sure. and less into the into the wine did you see that was you didn't want well to that go was that always route. kind yeah. of you know when i'd go into the market in new york city that was always the question that i got asked um you know there was a lot of of questions about you know all, there's other wineries out there that have gotten in trouble for some of this stuff too and we were kind of facing we, we were facing a political climate that we didn't even really see coming as far as wineries that weren't 
working in the operating the way that they sh- necessarily should have, or at least the town thought they should have. So we got kind of locked into this whole thing where um, the town just thought if they let us do this, that that we would have uh, changed courses at some point and turned into something that they didn't want. And and so there was definitely this this element of it being much more you know tourist based and event based um we have a phrase on the north fork called agritainment i don't know if they use it out here but <laughs> yeah. that's basically no, that's what good. these places were called so yeah. they were known for agritainment it extended to wineries but also farm stands so in the fall it was not just come pick up some apples but go on our hayride pick some apples have some cider we have a band there's a bouncy house and yeah. so these places wineries and these farm stands included started to get a bad rap within the community because it was attracting a lot of yeah. crowds and blocking up traffic and so um as regan said this really was more about the community's reception to yeah. all these businesses and wineries started to become really the um, symbol for this agritainment and a what lot of the bad. people not liking that yeah. business and model was, in the town, which we, to be clear, never wanted to be that. That yeah. was the exact opposite of what we wanted to be, um, but it didn't work in our favor that there was this kind of yeah. we offered, uh, distrust of this style of business happening yeah. within we, the community. How much... I, I like to ask producers this who um, who I, I can tell take a lot of pride in what they put in the bottle. You as a winemaker and mm-hmm. for ultimately somebody who put, puts wine in a bottle and then your label on it and your name on it, mm-hmm. you have to constantly be aware of the wine reflecting what you want to accomplish. Sure. And if you, I see with these larger operations, there might be a, um, a temptation, let's say, mm-hmm. to uh, try to make wine disappear that they might that might not be quite up to their own mm-hmm. standards. Mm-hmm. How, how much do you think about that? And you said that you had occasionally something maybe to go wrong that you had to oh, kind yeah. of throw out. I had like four barrels of Petit Verdot that still might be sitting out in the field somewhere in Long Island. <laughs> um, no, I, we don't worry we we got rid of them but um that it just didn't what had happened was the we made wine in 2015 under an open-sided tent because we didn't have a place to make it and so everything was done out in the open um and the last thing we picked was petite verdot it came in on a super cold day and never warmed up in time before the the bad guys got to it so to speak and so it just got to the point where i couldn't heat it up and get it fermented out to where I was appreciative of it and I just dumped it down the drain. Yeah. Um, that wasn't worth uh, us trying to hide it. We're too small to hide something like that anyways. Um, so it was just not, you know, I just felt, Right, yeah, that's that, and and with some of your techniques, especially, um, you know, you're known for lower sulfur dioxide, yep. which which for folks, that's the um, sulfites warning on the label, and most wineries, you know, use a fair amount to protect it from oxygen and mm-hmm. from spoilage, and when you don't use as much sulfur, you 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 run a, a, a higher risk, right? It's a yeah. little bit more dangerous. Yeah, it can be, and I think I think you know. There is a tendency of some people to, you know, over medicate their wines, so to speak, mm. um, you know, just cause it, you can sleep at night and I get that like, right. um, but you know, we just tend to, to be on the opposite end of that spectrum or choose to be on the opposite end of that spectrum and try to keep it as strictly just what went out, came out of that vineyard as possible and, and not get in the way. So yeah, we've never inoculated anything. We've, you know, sulfuring is most, some wines we don't sulfur and some we do right at the bottling. And, you know, we've never made that the main point of what we 
ours and wine. Like we want to make delicious wines at the end of the day. This right. isn't a, like a chemistry project of like, oh, let's see like what we can't do to make and get it in the bottle and just sell it. Um, so there is a high bar in what we're willing to to put out there in our, our endeavor here. Right. I think that that is, and we want to be clear about that because the, the natural, the quote unquote natural wine movement right now has a lashback and pe- sure. people who are, uh, you know, taste a lot of wine. They say, well, you shouldn't be a natural wine just to say you're a natural yeah. wine and produce off wine. Well, it, it, it can't, you can't say, make, bad wine and just call yourself a natural winemaker and say, okay, yeah, I, you know, my wine's this way because I'm natural. Like, eh, like you should, you need to make something that's really something worth drinking at the end of the day. Like that's what we're here to do. Enjoying. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when did you start uh, seeing some attention come to you in Long Island? And, uh, you know, there was some articles written and, and the wines started to be carried in some of the, the really nice restaurants in New York. Was there kind of a turning point? Did, did was, was there something written or did... Um, it wasn't press. It was It was the industry. And I think what we really benefited from was the fact that there was a lot of young and small wine distributors out there that were getting started. And also there was a lot of restaurants that suddenly were saying, you know, we want to know what's in our backyard and we want to support what's in our backyard. And so, you know, one of the first sales calls that I ever did on our own before we had a distributor was walking into Gramercy Tavern and seeing Julia Pope. And I can remember how I was like (laughs) incredibly anxious and nervous and she picked up the Cap Franc. And I think that honestly was probably one of the things that took everybody like, you know, it made everyone sit up and, and listen. And that's when we found, you know, our first distributor. And from there, like now we have our distributor in California, uh, all through California. We have them in Massachusetts and Virginia and DC and right. uh, Rhode Island. So, and all of them have come with us to Texas. I mean, obviously they want to be sure that what we make is good, but they've all said, you know, we're with you, which is exciting. Right. And, and so we should say we're going to start to change gears. We're going to take a short break and then change gears as to what's happening with you here in Texas. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's such a tricky thing. This is going to be your first vintage. I mean, you've <laughs> seen, um, you've seen some things going on and you've certainly talked with producers. Sure. Uh, and then you set up shop in the hill country, right? It, what, what's that? It's the town. Uh, we're just North of Stonewall. We're actually technically in Fredericksburg, but we're like, Basically, like you can see our place from the crush pad at William Chris. That's right. how those guys have said it, you know. <laughs> well, um, let's take a short break and we'll get into it. Uh, you're tuned into 91.7 FM, KOOP. My name is Mark Rayshap, and this is Another Bottle Down, the show about wine and the wine industry. We're talking about, we're talking with uh, Regan and Carrie Mater from Southhold Farm and Cellar. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. It's another bottle down, and uh, we're talking about with this wonderful, these wonderful guests that I have in the studio, uh, Regan and Carrie from Southhold Farm and Cellar, recently uprooted from uh, from Long Island, and uh, they're about to get into their first vintage of Texas wine. Um, and I'm really excited to hear your impressions and all of the ideas that brought you to Texas and what you're seeing right now as we're nearing harvest. We're getting kind of close, but first I want to mention to our listeners that support for co-op comes from Lincoln Pin Gallery presenting Verste 
Callahan, understanding a multimedia performance series and gallery exhibit, taking place through Sunday, July 30th. Reception and artist Q&A Friday, July 14th from 5.30 to 8 p.m. And regular gallery hours are 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Lincoln Pin is located at 2235 East 6th Street, Suite 102. And more information is available at linkpinart.com. And you can follow along with this show at koop.org. And, um, and yeah, let's get into some more wine talk. I mean, I'm, I'm getting thirsty. We, we tasted <laughs> some wines out in the lobby. They're wonderful. They're alive. They're, they're vibrant. And this is the, the lot of wines that you have from, have brought uh, down to Texas from Long Island. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's kind of odd. Long Island's are, wines are hard to find here. And, and <laughs> you've kind of uh, just brought a big... Uh, we almost <laughs> had them down here. We, you know, we have our distributor down here and they were just about to get sent down when the decision came through, but that never happened. Now they're here. <laughs> so, so you get so you get this such unfortunate situation where this coding situation was uh, reinterpreted, and you basically said we don't want to change our business model. Mm-hmm. We want to uh, find another place where we can actually do what we want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, why not California or Washington or Oregon? Why Texas? Well. <laughs> <laughs> the Finger Lakes were too cold. Finger okay, Lakes were right. too cold. <laughs> right. Washington was too far away. Okay. Um, too big of a time difference for my family in New York and his family in Texas. Um, and honestly, I mean, Regan has family here, and, and it's always been an area that we've visited and followed along, I think, since we started coming out here as early as 2008. Yeah, yeah. Seeing it grow. I remember going with his parents to William Chris when it was literally just that first um, building. And then now we go back there, and it's so many more buildings. So <laughs> while we've been watching it from afar, we've certainly seen it grow. And I know that Regan's been able to have relationship, relationships with a lot of the people out here as well. So um, there was this excitement and seeing the growth and kind of getting in on the ground level and helping to make this region better and more exciting was definitely an appeal. Yeah. And then, of course, having family and having um, the relationship. So there was a lot of things going for the region. For the so it really became one of the only places we seriously looked at. While we tossed around other ideas, this was the only place that we came and looked at properties and well, said, what do we want to find? And we were lucky to find the right property. So that was really what sealed the deal. Yeah, I mean, we got really lucky with everything kind of falling into place and and also having a lot of, of great advice from a lot of producers out here just in terms of kind of getting the lay of the land and watching what they built was exciting to see from afar. I mean, like I just said, um, you know, showing up at William Chris and, and same thing like Benning Branch and all these places that kind of started um, as we were really thinking and moving what we were doing in, in Long Island um, forward with that, um, you know, this it, it came a no brainer once we started talking to these guys. Um, you know, there's this sense of just like, let's let's do it here. You know, like everyone's kind of in it and they're trying to do it right. Um, I mean, you know, there's you have the political things that pop up here and there, you know, disagreements and stuff. But I don't think that ever takes away from the true thing of, you know, people really want to make great Texas wine. Yeah. So less inhibition. So, you know, if we, if we talk more about that, how does that realistically play out? So do people say less like, Oh, well we can't plant there or we can't plant this variety or we can't do that. There's less cans and more. How do we (laughs) make this work? I mean, for, for me, the, the geeky side, of me just got out here and you know we we have a ranch in west texas outside of el dorado um and we've always i kind of always dreamed about doing something there and you know you start digging into soil types and 
just a plethora of stuff here. I mean, you're really talking about, you know, like I said earlier, you have, you know, the property that we bought, which is bracket soil. This is very shallow, like not very fertile, like mostly all limestone and like, like tufo almost, you know, like where Greco de tufo comes from. It's like chalk. And and so super well-drained, like it's exciting. Which is great for vines. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And so like, to me, like suddenly now I'm a kid in a candy shop, like where (laughs) there's a guy that has Sangiovese on Caliche. That's exciting to me. You know, like I want to get out to our ranch and find some interesting spots for Grenache. I want to get out to the Davis mountains. I want to work with stuff in Mason County. You know, like there's so many different things and places and soil types and things microclimates within those areas that I, I mean, it's going to take, you know, my great, 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 great grandkids before I think we even have a, a semblance of what like works out here and how it works out here too. But I think that the key point that you're, you're getting is that people were having this conversation when you jumped in here sure. and people are still having this conversation. Sure. I, I think it started to heat up a lot more. I think, you know, I think a lot of these guys, I, I don't think that we could have come here and done and, and do what we're about to do had we had shown up in 2010 or 11. Right. It really took us to go and do what we ever did to come back to the point where like Chris and Bob and all these other, you know, Doug Lewis and all these guys that built the industry to where it is today. Now let's our little crazy thing exist in this big ecosystem that they've built. And, and so now we get to be a part of, um, now that they've kind of set the bar, so to speak, we get to part, be a part of like standing on what they've built and kind of continuing that conversation forward, which is what we were trying to do in Long Island. And there can be a discussion also about winemaking style. Sure. And, you know, that's one of the brilliant things about the wine industry is that um, you can have all of this good wine and then certain wines that have different styles and their mark put on by the particular vineyard or the winemaker. And then for whatever reason, one person might gravitate to one and one sure. person might gravitate to the other while it's all technically good you know no absolutely i mean it's kind of like music or art or anything like that you know you have your different types of instruments and the way that you approach them and everything like that and you're going to get different sounds out of that and that's the exciting part about it and i think that's I, the excitement to wine you know you can really decide what your approach is and how you want to express your sights and your things that you're growing. Um, and, 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 and that's your decision. It's almost magnified though with wine, because if you look at, you know, a, a piece of art that, um, is maybe disagreeable to you, yeah. it's a lot, uh, easier to, to tackle than if you ingest a wine that's a lot <laughs> and is not very attractive. Well, I don't know how many <laughs> bad wines you've tasted, but I can tell you that like t- putting a bad wine in your mouth is pretty uh offensive offensive. (laughs) exactly but but, uh uh, but yeah you know i I think it's fun and i think it's it's smart to remember i have to remind myself because i sometimes cast to kind of slow me down because i get to where i get on my soapbox about my ideas um so this was a year ago that you just to put our timeline uh uh in a little bit more context it was a year ago that you made kind of the the start of the transition maybe the permitting processes well we that's when we decided to put the property for sale so we found out in march of last year that we were not going to be 
able to move forward with the plan we put in place. We sat on that for a while thinking about what did we want to do? Did we want to continue there and, and, you know, become something else? And then ultimately it was around the spring or summer um, of last year, maybe May, that we decided to put our house and property on the market. Mm. And so uh, that was the beginning of the transition. And around that same time, we started to come out here and look at some properties as well to think about what would be next. And so we started to do that at the same time. And then finding property and selling the old property was a little bit of a process, as you can imagine. And then we ultimately relocated here just in April. Mm-hmm. In April. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well, welcome. Uh, mm-hmm. Welcome back, you know. <laughs> and and so can we give a little glimpse into how you found the actual property? Because you're, you're planted uh, vines there. And yeah. then you're also going to be playing around with fruit from around the state. Right? Yeah. So um, the plan is plant actually next spring. We found, you know, what we were looking for was I wanted to work with hillsides, um, you know, and, and play with, uh, you know, we're, we're not as, as north as like the northern run or anything like that where your aspects are going to be as big of a deal, but I still think it'll place some of it. And so my one of my theories that I have is seeing where how a northern aspect helps delay or elongate the season for us and maybe delay bud break you know, two of the things that kind of can be problems, um, in the hill country, if you're coming out too early and getting frosted out. Um, so that's kind of like a theory, theoretical thing. Um, so just to put in my mind, and I'm constantly trying to interpret the industry and mm-hmm. try and put it in context with wines from all around the world. Uh, that seems like almost a, a, a great theory to have a, I mm-hmm. mean, because most of the other wine regions around the world and the most famous wine regions are on slopes. slopes. Well, and on bad soils too. I mean, you, we spent time in Chateau to pot last year um, and all through the run really. And just looking at their soils and what, you know, the thing kind of things that they were doing, um, and just wrapping our heads around, you know, what was possible, um, that, and, and things that we didn't have access to in Long Island. Long Island is a fairly, um, homogenous, uh, piece of land. The soils don't really vary all that much. Um, but here you've got, you know, like I was saying earlier, the plethora of stuff. So, so what kind of things did we want out of it? Where did it make sense for us to kind of plan our flag? Um, it's going to be a a Herculean effort. I mean, the slopes that we're looking at are fairly steep. Um, and so do growers currently not plant on slopes or is that, was that kind of a a new way of thinking about things here in Texas? It's impossible for me to know where everybody's planted, but I think generally what you see is stuff planted, um, like 290 is a valley floor and that's those, a lot of those vineyards in the hill country. And then you have round mountain and stuff like that, but they're still fairly, fairly flat from what I understand. But I think people are starting to, to explore that, you know, I wouldn't say that we're the only ones. It's just something that is kind of the next step. I mean, sure. you gotta, you know, crawl before you walk. And that's, I think what's happening within the industry for sure. As far as how they approach their vineyards, like, let's just get to where we can harvest something and keep our vineyards alive and blah, blah, blah. And then from there we build on that and start looking at sites and start looking at, 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 um, soils types and microclimates and things like that. And I want to reinforce this because it's natural. It's very hot here in Texas, obviously. And that is, uh, so the growers keep on trying to come up with ideas as to how to kind of mitigate that. And grape variety is certainly Mm -hmm. one. And then you're saying a Northern facing vineyard might really be a great key. It could help. I mean, we, like I said before, it's not as drastic of a thing when you're this far close to the equator as opposed to Northern. Um, but, to me, it's like, why not, why not try? Why not try? And, it, you know, like, to me, the heat, obviously, the sun and the heat are the two biggest factors here that we, 
as far as the growing season that we have to deal with, obviously people would say, well, you got humidity and things like in disease and stuff like that. That's yeah, that's standard for anywhere we go. But from what I come from, um, those are the things that are going to affect the outcome that I want. And so, you know, we're looking at head training the vineyard instead of trellising it and doing as much dappled sunlight as we possibly can. We're looking at wider spracing and dry farming even, um, the vineyard we've talked a lot with some guys in France and in uh, the eastern side of Paso Robles that's just as dry if not more dry that are dry farming their vineyards out there and they're doing it successfully um, so those are the kind of questions that we're starting to ask and how we can approach what we're doing and add to the conversation it's not to say that this is the only way that you can do it and this is the right way to do it it's just to say what if we can do it and it makes something taste awesome right exactly and um, I do want to uh, kind of mention something that uh, head training vines is, yeah, is like a bush uh, and it's like a bush and it's and it's lowered to the ground and you typically get less fruit off of it, mm-hmm. and, it and you can't mechanize it. No, right? there's it no machine harvesting. And and that's I mean, the biggest fear that I've, you know, just being here has been, you know, the labor pool. You know, there you don't have it was a struggle up in on the North Fork, but there was a fairly decent sized labor pool there it's depleted too but that's that's going to be the the scary aspect of this is you know are we going to have the manpower um besides us to help us um so how big will the vineyard be or is it planted it's yet? not it's, it's going to be yet. planted next year so next year, we okay. got we're going to put in about 22 acres 22 acres but a lot less vine uh density so we're going to be planting them 10 by 10 it's just going to look like a orchard really more so than what a someone would think of a vineyard i guess um and what's the and and what's kind of the concept and the theory behind that well it's i think it'll be easier to work the hillsides um it's also you know on the on the more practical and if it turns out that it's not working for us we can always go back in and trellis um you know there's that um but give spacing them out allows them to find more water and so they're not competing um, and also where we're planting, we're high up on that Northern side of the, that 290 Valley or whatever. Um, and I don't know the names of my geography that well yet, but <laughs> we get a lot of wind and it stays windy through the spring. And that's one of the other aspects. I mean, I call it my Texas mistral. Um, you know, that I, I look at that as a, a unique aspect to our spot that might allow us to get into biodynamics and dry farming and things like that because things will dry out faster than if you're down in the valley floor not getting the same kind of wind that we're getting yeah so it's it's kind of approaching it from what is our what do i think our site that we found um is has as far as potential and how can we harness it to make something really unique and special right um and i think that that goes back to what you're saying instead of saying uh, we can't uh, grow a certain kind of grape or a certain style. Um, what can we do to push the bar and, mm-hmm. to, and to create high quality? And I think wind, I don't hear people much talking about wind in Texas other than in a negative sense in the high plains with shard, with wind interrupting flowering. Sure, sure, sure. But um, disease pressure is a really big problem. And when you have winds blowing through, it kind of air blow dries the, mm-hmm. and, and there you don't have to use as many chemicals as well. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of the, the thing, you know, we came from a place that, that I would argue is much more disease prone than here. And, uh, we had one of our best growers who is, like I said, biodynamic and he was 
pulling fruit off every vintage and, and doing it to some degree better than a lot of other people were. So I do have a belief that if you figure out a few of these little things and kind of get your timing down, which is really what it may, amounts to is, is being in that vineyard and, and putting in the time, you can accomplish it. I think it's possible. There, I've heard of too many vineyards that have gone untended and still been alive out here, which is impossible to happen in the North Fork. Right. That concept of timing, um, if... Uh, if you're interested in maybe a more deve- uh, a, a really in-depth discussion about that, I had a, a, an interview with Sergio Quadra on uh-huh. that, who is a, a Chilean winemaker, and he talked about um, the concept that grapes can almost ripen overnight. Literally, I mean, they can mm-hmm. go from uh, you know very low sugar levels to and be kind of perfectly ripe. And if you're not there at the right moment, mm-hmm. um, whereas in Napa or Chile or other wine growing areas, you, you can, have a couple of days. You got a couple days or a week and so you can kind of like not you know you know i'm already realizing that i'm like so far behind i'm getting calls right now from some of our growers in the high plains and some of our whites are like i should be picking that tomorrow like like, like, what just happened i'm not ready for that yeah where are we gonna put it (laughs) so so that's the idea that you will be um you so you'll be getting you'll be making wine in in this 2017 vintage that's coming up yes and how did you kind of find your growers how did you that was help from uh, i mean that's the thing I mean, you know, just as well as I do, like, like we have been so blessed by the community out here and the guys that are already doing their thing. Um, and that was really another aspect of this that made it kind of a no brainer. Um, you know, everyone is so willing to share and point you in the right direction and get you into whatever you need. And that, you know, that's so necessary for a region to thrive and to be able to, you know, now be a part of that and to hopefully contribute back to that is super exciting. And so we got put in touch with people, you know, some people were starting out, so we're going to work with some young vineyards and we're going to work with some crazy varieties again. And maybe, you know, and, and I hear these guys talking about this all the time where it's like, Hey, there's this great, great vineyard with great fruit on it. I just can't take it. I'm full or whatever. And so they're happy to pass that on instead of being competitive. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that that is, we are in a great time if you look at the evolution of some regions around the world you know they often come uh there often is this period of collaborative efforts and Mm -hmm. then maybe sometimes it gets overly competitive you know 20 years down the line but you know it swings back and forth right it goes back and forth for sure yeah um well, um, I'm really enjoying this conversation, and it's great to meet you guys. Um, I'm here with Regan and Carrie from South Old Farm and Cellar, and you can go to southoldfarmandcellar.com for more information, and I'll post a link on the co-op webpage. Uh, we're going to take a short break and hear uh, some announcements and then be back with some final thoughts, so please stay tuned. Support comes from the Bullock Museum, presenting a summer of family-friendly activities, including films and documentaries, weekly hands-on programs, and exhibits. The full summer schedule is online at thestoryoftexas.com. All right, we're back. That was uh, that was quick. We didn't have time to sip some wine out in the lobby, but uh, <laughs> it's okay. Uh, my name is Mark Rasham, and this is another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio. And uh, Regan and Carrie from Southhold Farm Cellars relocated from Long Island and will be producing their first vintage 2017 coming up. Um, what are the first grapes that are going to start coming in? Do, you, do we know already? Albarino sounds like, for okay. me at least. 
I guess we should talk about what what the plans are for the whole lineup, right? So whites usually kind of come in a little bit first. Albanian. Yeah, we're gonna work with some Rusan and just I, it's kind of treating this vintage as like let's just throw it all at the wall and like try everything. <laughs> Carbonic Dolcetto, okay, you know, like we've got <laughs> Alianico, we have Sagrantino, we've got we found some Tirol to go. I mean, we're 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 really just what's going to work and what's not and let's play with it. I think I look, I'm looking at this vintage as more of like, let's just have some fun and make some really fun, juicy, fun to drink wines rather right. than trying to make the, you know, the hundred dollar bottle, uh, you know, and if, if something, if something in the vineyard, if I'm walking through it tastes like it deserves to go that way, then we'll to go. But I, sure. I really treat all of our vintages completely separate to the next one and try to make, the wine based on what I'm getting out for that vintage. And that's why we name every single wine separately. We don't name the same thing over and over again. So yes, it's I, hard to keep in, t- in, in, in track, but right, right. And, and was it a challenge to build a winery from the ground up? I mean, uh, you, <laughs> you did, you built it from ground up, right? I saw maybe mm-hmm. on your Facebook page, um, that, but it could have been very interesting that you could design things exactly how you want them to do what you want them to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Or, or was well, that a challenge? I think the big thing is we were just happy to be able to build it without having to ask um, the whole town and everyone involved for permission. So <laughs> that neighbors. was a huge win that got things started a lot quicker than otherwise. <laughs> um, but Regan already had, had a plan. We'd been thinking about this on Long Island. So I think that uh, with the size in Texas, he was able to make it a little bit bigger than what we would have been able to do in New York. Production-wise. Production-wise. Uh-huh. But, um, you know... Definitely still keeping it, what, 5,000 cases, right? Yeah. So nothing huge, nothing crazy. Um, and then on the tasting room side, we've started construction on both of them and hoping to have both buildings finished in the next couple weeks. Um, and the tasting room is still going to be pretty small. Uh, Regan likes to call it his wine study. Um, historically, he'd only really been the person that worked there. So, Mark, you were saying before about, you know, putting good stuff in the bottle and, and having it and talking about it. But even went a step farther because Regan was actually also the one selling it, right. like literally hand selling it. And so when we open, um, it will be a pretty small space, uh, 500 square feet, 500 yeah. square feet inside okay. and a, a larger outside patio, which we didn't have before. So still very much a small setting, um, an intimate setting where it'll be myself and Regan and um, maybe some other family members that we can loop in coming down to help hand sell and uh, having that small intimate experience. Yeah. So you won't find a giant facility, even though we do have a larger piece of property than what we had before. We really want to focus on it's Our wines are so different and in the sense of like how we approach everything, we really want to get to where we're educating people about what we're doing, be able to have a conversation about the wine. That's why I call it a wine study. I mean, it's both a thing and what we want to have happen there. Um, and so that's, that was of great importance to us is to be able to, say, okay, yeah, this is a carbonic Cabernet Franc. What does that mean? What does it mean? And this is, you know, and, and not getting to, you know, tasting notes of this or that, but like, like what, what does texture mean? And what does, you know, what, what does making wine this way get you in that regard? And, and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. And folks can then get so much more insight by talking with the person who made it, you know, Mm -hmm. as far as, um, you know, really insight into all of the pieces that come together to make that final wine. Sure. It's wonderful. How will people be able to kind of follow your progress on that? Um, Facebook page, Facebook page, Instagram, Okay, and then you and the might website. have a, a mailing list, so yeah. you'll, you'll let people know when uh, when the tasting room is open, et cetera. Yeah. 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 
Okay. Well, um, I really look forward to going out to visit and, and staying up with what, what you're doing. Uh, I want to mention real quickly, uh, we have a few minutes left. The, um, your labels are so striking, I think. And, <laughs> and uh, of course, um, you know, we can't judge a wine by the label, sure. but, um, but I think a key piece, you don't want something that's not appealing to the, to your, your sense of aesthetics sitting on a table. So sure. it is kind of part of this whole, uh, romantic piece. Yeah but they're so striking. They're mostly black, but then there's splashes of colors, almost like lithograph. Yeah. Tell us about, about how that came about. I think the, the starting point for all that is Regan's ability to name the wines. So um, I always have a running joke that on my iPhone, I keep a running list of potential names for kids, and Regan keeps a list of potential names for wines. <laughs> and so he's got a really creative approach to this, and so he's got a really great list, and he names them creatively, and then we work with a really great designer on Long Island who helps to kind of really bring those names to life in a really fun, collaborative way, and we get to be a part of that, so it's pretty cool. Um, the labels were originally all black and white, and the addition of color was to signify the estate-grown grapes. So what we tasted earlier, those were all from the estate, so that's why you notice the color on there. So yeah. we'll have to decide if we and keep that up or if yeah. we change I it up now that we're here. it's going to keep going, and I think the thing is is we want people to approach these wines. That's why they're always different, that each one is its own unique thing, yeah. and that's what we want you to see. So give us some examples of, of the names of these creative <laughs> names. So I, I have here Chasing Moonlight, which was mm-hmm. your sparkling red, yeah. which was pretty cool, right? Yeah. Yeah. What are some others? We had Damn the Torpedoes, <laughs> Illegitimate Non-Carborundum, uh, <laughs> I Want to Be Stereotyped. I like that one That's with, with like the stereo uh, yeah. on the label. Very cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we tend to have fun with them. They, they, be, they end up being a little autobiographical to a degree, too. I try to kind of infuse some of what's happening, that vintage, into the storytelling of that. That what the wine is of that vintage. Um, so that's kind of an important aspect of this. Uh. Yeah, and we, we've touched upon this too. Um, I'd like kind of your, your impressions as to um, maybe the, I think that we've talked about what you're excited about Texas, but um, do you, are you excited about other things around, around the world? Uh, do you taste wines from around? Uh, yeah. Do you, you, you go and travel? We talk, you know, I think, I mean, the United States right now is probably one of the most exciting wine regions as far as I'm concerned. You see what people are doing in places like Vermont and, you know, some friends in Portland are doing great things out of stuff out of uh, all over the place. I mean, and then, you know, Virginia and Michigan and stuff, the Finger Lakes, like, like there is people are kind of starting to wake up and approach winemaking um, for winemaking's purpose rather than it just being, you know, an ego driven thing, you know, a, a shrine to your ego, so to speak. Um, and I think that's kind of exciting. I mean, that's when you really start to to uh, try things that are meaningful and soulful. And that's, to me, is is the real exciting aspect of this. And we'd love to see more of that happen here in Texas and, and across the country. Yeah, and uh, one last question for you. Do you see there was the, the restaurants going, kind of searching for the local was such a big sure. piece in, in New York for you. Do you sure. see maybe some inklings of that here as well? I, I, th- I see it across the country. I mean, we have our distributors in California, and I, we get, I get Instagram alerts about our wines ending up in these awesome spots and everywhere from San Diego to San Francisco and, and beyond. And like, it's crazy to me. I mean, sure, they're Long Island right now, but they're eventually will be Texas. And we get to go out to New York City and to, to all through California and kind of spread the gospel of Texas. And that, that to me is exciting. And now you're at a point where these restaurants are like, we want things that are food friendly. We want, you know, things that, that, that 
do just as much that my food does, or if not more. And that's, I think that's kind of an exciting time. It makes it more fun. Absolutely. And we'll stay in tune with you guys. Thank you so much for yeah. being here, coming into co-op. Thank you. uh, you've been listening to another bottle down on co-op radio. Uh, check out Regan and Carrie uh, at Southhold Farm, uh, Southhold Farm and Cellar, southholdfarmandcellar.com and on all of the social media to stay up to date with them. Um, thank you for listening and tuning in to co-op radio this hour. I've had a whole lot of fun. And uh, next week I'm going to talk with another Texas winemaker who has relocated from elsewhere as well. So that'll be exciting. (laughs) Tune in next week and have a wonderful week, everybody. Drink some wonderful wine and love your loved ones.